Jesus, thanks for your love and your grace and, and for the redemption that you have purchased for us and, that, um, and what you do for us in setting us free. Uh, we, we will praise you our whole lives. We will learn how to surrender more and more to you and your leadership, Father, and, and we pray that you'd help us to just let go and, and uh, allow you to be able to search our hearts. We don't want to hide anything from you right now. Uh, we have been guilty of hatred and bitterness and anger, and, and we ask you to forgive us and to just set us free. And we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we just finished uh, chapter 14 in the book of Exodus, which, uh, does anyone remember what big event happened in chapter 14? Red Sea Crossing, exactly. And the Egyptians drowned in some water. That's right. And uh, there's, a, you know, uh, all the science about it is really fun and trying to understand and remember or figure out where the Red Sea crossing site was. And we talked a little bit about that. But then we talked a little bit more, a lot more, about the, the actual lesson in that, which was that God's power to deliver uh, it happens and it comes into our lives when we reach the end of our road, when we reach the point where nothing else can deliver us. That is the place that we have to get to before God can, can come in and truly deliver us and set us free. You have to reach the end of trying, the end of self-sourced efforts, the end of pride, the end of, oh, I can do this because I'm an American and I grew up in the church and I know theology and that's what's going to get me through. No, we have to come to the end where we say, I am beyond hope. Only the grace of Jesus Christ can set me free and I have to just wait here for him to deliver me. And as we get to that place of the end, God is always faithful to come in and, and deliver. And so we saw the children of Israel. They got to the end of the road. They cried out to the Lord, but it was in bitterness. They didn't even have it right. They didn't even know how to cry unto the Lord. And, and they, 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 were, they were like, why did we even come out here? And Moses is like, don't fear, but trust in the Lord. And the Lord gave them direction and instruction and got them through the Red Sea. And then the water crashed down on the Egyptians and all their chariots and killed them all. That's what just happened. So now we get to chapter 15, and we have the song of redemption. The song of redemption. Now, the entire book of Exodus is about the word redemption and how God can deliver his people, his chosen people, uh, by his own mighty power. And so this song is, is connects very intensely with the whole meaning of the book. In fact, this song placed kind of in the middle of the book has the, the actual um, theme of the book. When we get down to verse 11 or 12 or somewhere in there, uh, you have the theme of the entire book, um, who is like our God who redeems us and, and delivers us. Uh, so we're going to see that today. But this song is what we're talking about. Well, when you see a huge boulder sitting in the middle of a valley, and you look at this boulder, and it's a different kind of rock than all the other rocks around it. Maybe there aren't even any rocks around it. You'll conclude that this boulder was brought there by some glacier or possibly from a volcano. But that boulder came from miles away where those type of boulders are found, and it was brought by something external, 
something powerful, something strong, maybe a long time ago, brought that boulder to where you now see it. This song that we see in the book of Exodus today is that boulder. It is different than everything else we find in the book. It is different than everything we've seen up until this point in creation. In human history, nobody has written a poem or a song up until this point. And it's possibly the most skillful and perfect expression of words from then even up to now. You're like, whoa, I didn't realize we were getting to the Shakespeare part of the Bible. (laughs) Um, It's... What can compare, the reason why it's so amazing, okay, the reason why this song stands out among all other songs and among all other even parts of this book and parts of the Bible is that what can compare to the music that flows out of a newly delivered heart? It's a good question. What can compare to the music that comes out of a heart that's just been set free? And that's why this is called the Song of Redemption. And the crazy thing is only one kind of person can sing this song. Can you? Can you sing it? Only a person who's gone through the Red Sea of death and standing on the opposite shore can sing this song. Can you sing this song? Have you died and been raised again in new life? Only someone who has stepped out in faith and trusted God for their salvation, where it was at the end of the road, there was no human way of salvation, can sing this song. Can you? Have you reached the end and seen God come through to deliver you? Only someone who has died by faith on the cross of Jesus and has received his wonderful life in exchange can sing this song. Can you sing it? You're like, I haven't even heard it yet. How do I know if I can sing it or not? Unbelievers cannot sing this song. Unbelievers cannot worship God. They have no knowledge of what life looks like outside of being dead in trespasses and sins. That's their life. And even believers who doubt their standing before God have a hard time genuinely worshiping God and singing this song. Because with this song, it's got this built-in thing where you you can't fake this song. You can't fake it. And that's true with all worship. You cannot fake it. You can't just hum the words. You can't learn it by reading it on a page and following the notes. You can't read the music. It only flows out of a heart like light and heat and lava flow out of a volcano, an erupting volcano. And I want you to have this image, this picture, this is what came to me this week of an, um, a, an erupting volcano is what worship should look like. A volcano cannot hide what's inside it when it's erupting, can it? You clearly see what is going on with the volcano. It can't be something else. When it blows, you know what's coming out. It's going to be lava and heat and light. And it's the same with the song of the redeemed. It's going to explode out of your heart. When you sit down alone 
and your day is going rough and you sit down to have some time with Jesus and you start to sing a song, a song starts to pour out of your lips of thanks and praise to God, there is nothing like that in all human experience. It is very true. So as we get into this, we need to define a couple words, okay? We're going to define the words ransom and the word redeemed. And this is going to be important for our study today, so pay attention. The word ransom is the price that you pay for one's freedom. What price was paid for the, for the Israelites' freedom in Egypt? The blood of the lamb. Do you remember that? Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, as we studied the Passover, which prepared them to be delivered, the, the price that was paid was a lamb, a perfect lamb that was slaughtered for them. And as they placed the blood upon their home, they were, their price was paid. They were not under the consequence of the, uh, the, the angel of death there, right? Okay, so ransom is the price paid. But redemption or redeem, we're going to define that word like this to actually free the person whose ransom has been paid. So if you're walking around saying, my ransom has been paid, or you're walking around Egypt, um, it doesn't matter. You have to leave Egypt and go to where God is calling you out to go. And so the process of freeing them from the Egyptian authority over them and the, the bondage of the Egyptian armies, that process of setting them free, taking them to the Red Sea, and then delivering them through the Red Sea, which pictures death, as they go through all of this, that is the process of redemption. So the Lamb became the ransom for the children of Israel, and Jesus is the Lamb right? Then now God completes the redemption act by delivering the people from all that was over them and against them. And this can be described with a different animal, a lion. And Jesus is the lion, right? He's the lion and the lamb. We see in the book of Revelation many times he's called the lion. He's seen as a lamb. So before this redemption, I want you to try to remember how did the people of God speak, all these Israelites. I mean, even right before they crossed through the Red Sea, what did they sound like as they were talking? They were crying. They were sighing. They were in despair. They were sad. They were complaining. They were groaning. There was no joy in their life. Does anyone think, that's my life? That's what I look like as a Christian? I have no joy. I have no, I, I, I'm in despair. I'm complaining all the time. Is that me? Well, that's what they look like before they were redeemed. I've been to churches that sound like that when they sing. Um, they sound like sadness and despair, almost complaining, groaning, no joy. That's not what the volcano of thanksgiving, in my mind, sounds like. But what do they sound like after the fullness of redemption has been realized in their life? The sound is very different. What we're going to see today as we look at this is it sounds like joy, praise, singing, focus on God instead of focus on self. And what produced this change? What produced all this change from going from Oh, to, oh. Well, number one, the blood of the lamb. But they knew that before. But they had to have that. 
And the second thing was the power of God, the deliverance of God, the work of God in their life. It it was never just a new arrangement or a new phrase, a new instrument or a new sound that turned their worship from being crummy worship to being amazing spirit-filled worship that we see today. It wasn't a song. It wasn't an instrument. It wasn't um, talent. Nothing self-sourced. It was the blood of the Lamb combined with the power of God freeing them. The ransom and the redemption. The Lamb and the Lion. Uh, Do you see all those parallels? Good. Then we're allowed to start our text. So let's begin in chapter 15, verse 1. We're going to make it through uh, probably 27 today. So, the Mo- so Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke and sang, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Pharaoh and his chariots and his army, he is cast into the sea. He is cho- his chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sink to the bottom like a stone. This is stanza one of their worship song. So we're going to look at a few key points and words as we look at this song. First, they call it a new song. This is a new song, an exp- a real expression of, of what is now a reality in their heart. I got a Spurgeon quote, Spurgeon quote. When I do Spurgeon quotes, I sing that little ditty. That's fun. Um, so here's our Spurgeon quote for the day. Note, the word is not, the Lord gives me strength. But the Lord is my strength. How strong is a believer? I say it with reverence. He is as strong as God. The Lord is my strength. Well, how do I experience this strength of God? Where I can say the Lord is my strength and the Lord is my song. Nehemiah said, The joy of the Lord is my strength. You guys remember that? Okay. What does that mean? Everyone who is a Christian needs to be happy all the time? Nope, that's not what that means. It means that as we rejoice in the Lord, we are strengthened in our walk. We receive and partake of his strength. Well, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? That is another term simply for abiding in the Lord, remaining in the Lord, thinking, meditating, and talking about what God has done for you and who he is or his character. You see that in the song. They're they're obsessed with connecting with God for real. They're abiding. They're remembering what God has done. They're exalting what God has done. They're seeing God's character, and it's a real thing now in their life. They're not just hearing about God, they're like, I know God has delivered me and I can trust him now. I can do that. They are, they are doing what, John, what Jesus told us to do in John 15 verse 5 where he said, I am the true vine, 
abide in me and I in you, and apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, that's a good description of a lack of strength, doing nothing. Just nothing. So to do something, to do anything, to bear fruit like he asks us to do, he says there's a requirement, and this requirement is that you rejoice in me, you abide in me, you look unto me, seek me first, and what? All these things will be added unto you. Seek my kingdom first. Seek me. Then he says here, another phrase that I saw in that first stanza is, he has become my salvation. Again, this can only be said by someone who has been personally transformed. And I ask you, have you been personally transformed? Israel could never say this before this day. They were stuck in Egypt. Even though they believed the price had been paid for their sin, they hadn't gone through this transformation process. Only now, once they had been fully delivered and redeemed from all that held them bondage, can they sing this song. Have you been delivered from, a, from all life-dominating sin? Are you, I'm not, I'm not asking, are you sinless? Are you living a perfect life and never make mistakes? That's not what we're saying. But Romans 6.14 says, grace frees us from life-dominating sins. Sins shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. And grace empowers us to not have life-dominating sins. So when you think in your life, is there something that you cannot repent of? That you are holding on to. I will live this way. I don't care what God says about it. I don't care what God's word says about it. I don't care what anybody says about it. This is my thing and I will do it and I don't care what God says. That is called a life-dominating sin. That is a sin that, it, you, that you, it's got you in shackles. You were a prisoner of that sin. Now, I didn't say, do you struggle with sin? Are there sins in your life that you commit over and over again, but every time you commit them, you fall on your knees and you say, forgive me, Father, I'm wrong. I should not be that way. Please change me. Please strengthen me. That's the right way to go. That is a person who is not dominated by that sin. That sin is not running their life. They are under Jesus. They are under grace. They are coming to him to ask for forgiveness. Which is exactly what Jesus asked us to do. When you sin, confess your sins to the Lord and he is faithful to what? Forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's being free. And then, as we continue to confess our sins, continue to bring those things to the Lord time after time after time again, God doesn't get angry. He doesn't get annoyed. He says, I am working in you every time you come to me. I'm working in you to produce what I want in you. Keep repenting, keep repenting. God is not annoyed at you, okay? If I stand up here and to proclaim, God is good, God is wonderful, and he has triumphed gloriously like it says, but I don't actually see that in my life, I am fake, and I am a hypocrite. My praise is empty, my worship is not in spirit and in truth, but it's in flesh and it's false, the opposite of spirit and truth. If I proclaim, if I'm 
not willing to repent of all my sin, then I can't worship the Lord. I haven't been delivered from those bondage of those sins. But when I say, I, I am guilty, I'm a sinner, and Jesus forgive me, then we're set free. We are set free of all bondage. It's not heartfelt from the heart. Maybe my desire is heartfelt to have those things be real in my life, but wanting it doesn't make it happen. Maybe you're like, oh, I wish I could be set free from these sins. But we refuse to just come to Jesus and ask him. Oh, that's too simple. It's too easy. You can't just say that someone just puts their trust in the Lord and they're forgiven. That is what the scripture says. And faith means that we believe what the scriptures say. Hmm. I must come to the end of my road where I declare to God my weakness and my sinfulness and my need, and I ask him in simple faith, in total dependence, to deliver me today. We say something like, God, I'm still in bondage to this sin. Deliver me because I can't do it myself. And his response will be, well, why don't you come to church three more times and then we'll talk about it again. No, his response is, why don't you make sure you take communion and you uh, um, say 10 Hail Marys? No, his response is, I need to see tears. Show me that you really want it. No, no, sorry. His response is, yes, and amen, which means so be it. Jesus said, let it be according to your faith. I want to deliver you. I have paid the price to deliver you. I am strong enough to deliver you. If you will come to me today, acknowledge your need, and put your trust in me, you will be delivered. Must be by faith. And that's how that all works. He will deliver the person who calls out to him. So why don't we call out to him? Well, mostly it's pride. Most of the time we think, I don't really need God that much. I'm okay with the life I'm living. Ah, but we forget that God's standards are so much higher than ours. Are any of you living according perfectly to the law? Everything God wants you to do, you do it all the time. No, we're not. So when should a day come where we're not calling out to the Lord to deliver us? It doesn't. We don't mature out of humbly depending on Jesus. If you've been walking with the Lord for for 60, 70, 90, 100 years, that doesn't mean you've grown out of needing God more than the person who's the drug addict who came to know him today. It's the same. We need Jesus the same. So, I believe secret and persistent sins, things we hold on to, are more of a problem than anything else in our walk with God. It's what keeps our worship from being enjoyable and sincere. I have had experiences, and I'm not asking for you guys to raise hands, where worship was not enjoyable and it was not sincere. Right? And that's a problem. We know that's not how it's supposed to be. When we sing a worship song to the Lord, it should be like the volcano coming out and ah, joy to the Lord. We think it's self-consciousness, like, oh, I'm just worried about how I sound. Or we think we're embarrassed of our voices. 
But truly, those things disappear in one second when our hearts explode like a volcano rejoicing in the Lord uh, when he's truly delivered us and redeemed us. And the most beautiful worship I've ever heard is people just calling out to the Lord with joy and just thanking him. Not most beautiful voices, right? It's not that we're not saved. You have the blood. All of us, we believe in the blood of Jesus. But the Red Sea Cross is, is a true experience of being delivered. I want to remind you, what's our, our definition of the two words? Re- ransom means to pay the price for one's freedom, and redemption means to actually free the person whose ransom has been paid. The lamb pays the price. The lion goes to war with sin in our hearts and powerfully sets us free. And Jesus is the lion and the lamb. But these two things don't always happen simultaneously. I mean, we hear stories of someone who gets saved and immediately they're delivered from all their sin and their minds just work differently from that moment forward. And those are great stories. But for a lot of us, these two events happen at different times. We're set free where ransom is paid. We believe in the blood of Jesus, but we're still kind of prideful and hold on to a lot of it. And it's hard for us to trust him completely. And so we need this Red Sea experience where he delivers us so that we can now praise him in spirit and in truth with all our life. All right, well, let's go to the second stanza of this song. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. I picture the lion, the strength of a lion as I'm reading this part. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed enemy in pieces. In your greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You set forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide and spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You with your wind and the sea covered, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So God's power is exalted in this section. Uh, we see that we can trust him to deliver because he's strong enough and he's willing to do this delivering, this redemption. His strength is seen and he is seen as being sufficient. He doesn't need you to add to what he's doing. He needs your trust. He doesn't need you to add any strength to his strength. He is strong enough. God's grace is an act of his power fighting for you. His power displayed in you. His power and strength saving you. He's not intimidated by the enemies in your life. He's not afraid. He is strong and willing to fight for you against all those enemies. You are his chosen, his own special people, and he loves you. And he sees the enemies in your life, whether it be physical sickness or it be heart, what you're struggling to surrender to him. He's willing to go and fight for all those things. Now he says, who is like you? This, is, this section right here is the, the centerpiece of the entire book of Exodus. The most important ver- couple verses right here. The, the theme of the whole book right here. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? 
Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. This theme of the whole book is redemption. It's to actually be set free, the person who, whose the ransom has been paid. I mean, we saw that, the foreshadowing of Jesus uh, paying the price. But to actually set them free, only God can do it. And he says, who is like you? There's no one else that can deliver us from sin. No other religion, no other philosophy. It never works. Yet we generally try everything else under the sun until we bow before God in humility and say, I'm done trying, would you just save me? Don't we? Yes, we do. We put our trust in, oh, I'm an alcoholic. I need to go to AA first before I fall on my knees before Jesus. Oh, I'm doing this, but I need to just, oh, let me just try a little harder. Let me get involved in this group. Let me go see that psychologist. Let me do this or that. Instead of first trusting and calling upon the Lord. It says he has led forth the people he redeemed. You guys know Romans 8.28, don't you? God works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, right? He, his leading is merciful. He knows that we are weak. He bears with us in our weakness and our doubt, but he is no doubt leading us to freedom. He is guiding them and equipping them by his grace to where? He's got a point. To his holy habitation. Did you see that at the end there? That's the goal. That's the place he's getting them to. Well, what does that mean? It means fellowship with God. A deep, intimate connection with God where you're living with him, you're serving him. His goal is for them to live with him where he lives, to abide with him at his home, to be a big, holy family, children to call his own, to pour out his love and his affection on them. That's his heart. He is leading them. He's delivering them. He's paying the price for them. Not in that order. He pays the price, then he delivers, then he leads them through. He takes unholy rebels and he makes them holy by the blood of the Lamb. Then he invites them to live forever with him. And this is exactly what we do when we look at communion. We remember that we were unholy, but the cracker speaks of his body being broken and it reminds us that through that we are made holy. Through him being broken, we are made whole. So we consume that. We make it part of us. We believe it. And then we take the cup and we remember the new life being poured into us, how he calls us in new life to live now for him out in his holy habitation, which happens to be wherever you step in Denver. He's with you, but he can live with you through all of that. All right, now we get to the, the third, fourth stanza here of the song which speaks of the future deliverance. God is not just satisfied with where he brings them now. He talks about the future. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the, hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. 
and the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed, and the mighty men of Moab. Trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be still as a stone till your people pass over. O Lord, till your people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. All right. Edom and Moab are descendants of who? Do you guys remember? Esau. Right. Okay, so these pictures, which we studied deeply when we, were in the, when we were in the book of Genesis, Esau is a picture of flesh and of, of uh, what we can accomplish by being strong, mighty, and hairy and having a big beard. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. This is the Bible's words, not mine. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Well, Esau always pictures... The flesh, what we can do if we muster up the effort. I can go hunt a deer, Esau said. I can kill an animal. I can cook barbecue. Praise the Lord. (laughs) But he and his descendants became the Moabites, became the Edomites, and became one other group called the Amalekites. Okay, And we see these people as from this point forward, we're going to see Moabites, Edomites, Amalekites, and we're going to see they're a constant thorn in the flesh of the Israelites, and the Israelites are commanded to go kill these guys, to have victory over these guys. This is a battle that they're going to have. And our text here says that God's always going to give, bring you victory over Esau's descendants. And Jacob was not a picture of Esau. Jacob was weak, but Jacob was honest at the end. He struggled with honesty at the beginning, but he became weak and he acknowledged his, need, his weakness and need before God. And God said, that's faith. That's humility. When you acknowledge your weakness before me and you'll trust my word. And that's what Jacob was able to do, which changed his name to Esau or Israel. Excuse me. So he became Israel, you know, led by God, governed by God, delivered by God. So you have Israel. This pictures the spirit, the walk of faith. You have Esau, which picture, pictures the flesh, flesh and what we can do. And these things constantly are at war in our Christian life. The flesh and the spirit. The descendants of Esau and then descendants of Israel. So we get this picture of them going to war and God promises, I can deliver you and I will deliver you from Esau's descendants from your fleshly desires that's what that means everything that your flesh struggles with it's there it's real and you're going to encounter these bad guys inside you you're just going to be singing praise the lord and you're going to be hearing and then all of a sudden you're going to look to your left and you're going to be like i'm jealous of that person how did that happen well your flesh just got attacked your flesh just attacked you You were in the spirit and all of a sudden, distraction came. And God says, that's going to happen. But if you'll follow me and put your trust in me, what you'll say is, oh, forgive me, Father, for jealousy. I want to focus back on you again. Thank you, Lord, for delivering me. You you are delivered. You can be delivered. So this song, 
speaks of doubtless confidence that God will deliver completely from the enemies that still live in our lives, which we call the flesh. The flesh. They rise up at different times and they need to be defeated and God will always deliver and defeat them. But there will still be battles. You know, the promised land that we're going to read that these children of Israel are going into does not picture heaven. It never does in any illustration. The promised land, that, that's poor exegesis, that, that's poor understanding of what the, is being illustrated. The promised land is the victorious Christian life. There's no battles in heaven, but there are battles in the promised land. And so as we see the promised land, uh, them entering in, we see these, these bad guys all over, but that's to be expected. And I'm telling you that e- even though your f- life is filled with battles, and most of them you're married to. No, just kidding. But a lot of them we're married to. It, just, it seems like these battles just go on and on and on. That doesn't mean you're not living in the promised land. It's how you enter into the promised land is by faith, trusting in the Lord and in his word. Every time something comes up, every time there's an argument saying, I put to death the deeds of the flesh, I battle against them and I say, I don't have to be right. Let me love you and serve you instead. That's what the Spirit would say. We experience more of his victory as we are attacked and encounter enemies in this life because he always leads us forth in victory. It doesn't matter how many battles you have. In fact, the more battles you have, the more opportunities you have to trust in the Lord. But you don't understand, I've been facing the same battle every time, over and over and over again. Well, maybe the Lord's waiting for you to trust him in it. Maybe. Or maybe he's just love showing off how good you are at fighting in this battle if you're succeeding in the spirit. We don't know. Well, that's our study for today about worshiping in the Lord. So we're going we're gonna to sing a couple more songs now. I, we did it specifically this way so we would have time at the end of our um, study to worship the Lord. And to take this. So what I'm not saying is that we're going to fake everything now. And we're going to uh, be extra vocal in worshiping or anything like that. What I'm not saying is that we have... uh, This has to be more special than some other time. But we have an opportunity right now to just let the, the praise of our heart come forth like that volcano. Wow, that was bad. It, praise was escaping from the guitar, right? <laughs> like a volcano. I just came up with a name for my guitar. The Brown Volcano. <laughs> that not work? Oh, okay. We won't do that. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, if you weren't sitting in the front row, I would be all right right now. I can't get it. Hang on. Would you guys stand with me? All right. Oh, man. Father, I thank you that you uh, give us your word that we can put our trust in, our hope in, and that you, you show us this example of these, uh, 
these believers who have been, uh, they believed in the blood and they were covered with the blood and now they've been set free and delivered from everything that held them bondage. And Lord, we, we desire to see that same thing in our life and I, I believe we have. I believe it's been given to us. I believe that everyone in here is standing on that opposite shore totally set free. And so Lord, now we want to praise you uh, with all that is within us, with joy and with confidence, uh, believing and trusting in the future, Lord, you will deliver us from every attack of the flesh and enemy. Uh, Lord God, we put our hope in you and you alone. In your name we pray, amen.